A Dog's Life is brought to you by Earth Animal No Hide Wholesome Chews. Earth Animal No Hide Wholesome Chews are a healthy, heavenly, hand-rolled alternative to rawhide made from grass-fed beef, humanely raised chicken, and wild-caught Atlantic salmon. They're 100% free of chemicals, additives, bleach, and formaldehyde. It's the sustainable way to keep your dog healthy, happy, and filled with goodness and love. Mr. Binks and Prudence have never had a rawhide because in my book, they're not healthy. So imagine their excitement to enjoy a no-hide chew. Apart from helping to keep their teeth clean, chewing is an instinctual behavior that helps calm dogs by releasing happy hormones. Both Mr. Binks and Prudence relish the natural chewing experience from start to finish, and it gives me peace of mind that I'm giving them a treat that they were born to enjoy. In fact, no high chews are rated as excellent for digestibility, 80% compared to just 18% for rawhide. You can find Earth Animal No Hide Wholesome Chews at a pet shop near you or online at earthanimal.com forward slash UK. I'm Anna Webb. Welcome to A Dog's Life. Hey, Mr. Binks. I know it's a bit gloomy outside. That's why I've got a bit of a surprise for you because we're zooming over to New Mexico to talk to Dr. Chris Blasino. He's a psychotherapist and he's specialized in studying men's relationships with dogs and why dogs stir up the deepest emotions in men. Well, you are man's best friend after all. Thanks so much for joining us on A Dog's Life all the way over from New Mexico. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So your work, Chris, you've pioneered study into how men relate to their dogs. That's been an area of focus for some time now. And uh, how I got into that really, uh, it's uh, both personal and professional. So professionally as a psychologist, I specialize in working with men and you might uh, you might know that uh, men are usually pretty resistant to coming to therapy, and it kind of rubs up against them in terms of how they've been trained to be men and self sufficient and not vulnerable. And the thing that I saw over the years uh, would be that there would be these moments, uh, really pockets in time, where some men who were in psychotherapy started to talk about their dogs and talk about them in a way that they talked about no one else, a type of vulnerability and honesty and even tears, especially when they lost their dogs. So um, that definitely got on my radar screen as a psychologist, but I also know that there was a pivotal point in terms of uh, losing one of my own dogs, Kelsey, who was my best friend and portable family through graduate school in the early part of my career. And that's been 17, 18 years ago now. And I remember the thud that I felt when she passed away. And I stayed with that in terms of really needing to understand not just her importance, but uh, in, in our time together, but her importance after, I, after she left my life. Um, 
So when you combine these two roads together, personal and professional, and really try to think about dogs and men's life, it, it has a really significant aspect that for me, I've really enjoyed and been really interested in exploring. No, it's fascinating because, you know, I've used my psychology really to help, you know, understand dogs better and help uh, at times rehabilitate dogs. But it's it's interesting that you've used your psychology, which you've taken obviously a lot further than I have, but you've used dogs to really understand humans better. And I think part of the way we can think about this is, uh, especially in, in men's lives, that being with dogs, being with animal companions, which by way uh, definition would be that they are animal companions or pets that are like friends or family, that animal companions in that way can have a lot of psychological functions in our life that really enrich uh, our lives and our ability to have relationships. And you've done a lot of work looking back in time at how dogs and people coexisted and how perhaps way back we domesticated each other. Uh, and, you know, the, the missing link to the wolf or the dog that then became the dogs that we know today is still uh, unclear, actually, but something we, we talked about on another podcast, in fact. However, do you think this relationship that epigenetically has fused us with dogs is really the key clue to human psychology? Well, uh, I, I think it is in the sense that, you know, especially more contemporary psychoanalytic folks really think about the idea that as human animals, we're hardwired to make and sustain connections. And that's an essential part of our genetic and psychological makeup. And one way to look at our connection with dogs in that way is for some people, they provide an essential psychological attachment that they may not find with other human animals. So, uh, I really have no doubt that there is historical roots, whether we think about uh, burial rites in ancient Egypt, where dogs were not just a part of the ruling elite, but sometimes they ended up in the burial processions for an everyday person. Uh, so if we think about that or the potential link that has been estimated to be 10,000 to 30,000 years old, that form of connectedness has been around for quite some time, uh, a successful long-term relationship by any standards. Well, yes, and that's quite interesting in itself, perhaps where men are concerned with typically, you know, generally speaking, uh, <laughs> that men do have commitment problems. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And, uh, I think a, a big part of that comes from the idea of um, men are not always very well trained in terms of that skill set, in terms of being in a relationship and taking other people's perspectives. And where especially dogs can play a role, whether we're talking about in ancient times or more contemporary ones, would be that that's a relationship that men can really learn from in terms of perspective taking and uh, an ability to, to kind of think about the other person uh, in the connection and uh, 
uh, really fine tune those skills. Yes. And I think I, I love all of this because certainly in the UK, seems to me anyway, that women are mainly targeted as the dog owner. So I feel that a lot of marketing, uh, you know, on our underground system and around the place, these adverts are targeting the woman who is the way to buy new products for their dog and and so on and and in articles in in the daily mail and things it's always quoting women you know women 53% of women i remember this one get a better night's sleep with their dog than they do with their partner for example mm-hmm. so it's always women and dogs that are kind of i think highlighted and do you think men feel excluded from this well um i think one of the curious things about this is that a study a colleague and I did a few years ago looked at whether or not, based on the exact thing that you're talking about, whether or not men kind of feel like they have to underreport or even mask the importance of their animal companions in their life for fear of looking less manly. And what we actually found was that happened. Uh, and it does happen in terms of men feel a discomfort there in terms of being fully open about how important dogs are in their lives. So um, the marketing tools um, may be missing this important part in that this connection is really important to men. And um, one study that I did a few years ago looked at asking men uh, in the U.S., to compare their closest animal companion to their closest human companion. And 62% of men reported that they almost always have a secure connection with their dogs. When you compare that to their closest human companion, only about 15% people said, or men said that it was almost always a secure connection. So there's an importance there. It just may not be completely understood or widely reported. Yes. And in in your study, you know, in your practice, I guess grief and guilt perhaps are common emotions that you and your therapy have to entangle with with your patient. Am I right in, in thinking that? Well, those are definitely ones that drive folks into seeking therapy to try to sort that out. So uh, it's no exception when it comes to any important relationship, including the connection with our animal companions, that those emotions are prevalent, especially after uh, the passing of an animal companion, what to do with those feelings. And if you're not really well-trained to deal with the attachment part of connecting whether it's with humans or animal companions, the flip side of that is not being very well schooled in how to deal with loss. And uh, that's where it becomes complicated. And that's oftentimes when I first see people coming into psychotherapy. Oh yeah, I can believe it. I know you've experienced, you mentioned Kelsey there. um, And I know you've also lost your other rescue called Sadie. And I have to say, when I lost my first miniature bull terrier, Molly, I completely derailed Chris. I probably should have come to have seen you actually, (laughs) even though I'm a girl. (laughs) But I I found it really difficult to cope with the guilt that surrounded uh, her, her passing. And, you know, I'd spent the best 13 years of my life, really, so much happened in that chapter. And I think 
dogs are like chapters in our lives, aren't they? Well, I think that's a really good way to think about it. Um, it, it, it's so interesting to think about such an intense, important relationship that only lasts 10 to 14 years and uh, versus a lifelong connection. But one of the things I think that happens for people who grieve the loss of their dogs and animal companions is they have to approach grief in a different kind of way. And one of the concepts here is something called a continuing bond. And that means um, you find a new way to connect with, in this case, an animal companion after they're gone. And people do this in lots of different ways that are kind of pro-social ways, like they may uh, take up a cause on the behalf of the memory of their lost and beloved pet, or they might establish a kennel or plant trees or even a bench, things like that. Or other folks, in my case, um, you change the direction of your academic pursuits. Um, so these days when I think about writing or when I talk to people about animal companions, it, it always feels like it's a way to recognize and honor the connection with my animal companions that are in my life now and the ones that went before. So it ends up being a continuing bond with them that they're gone on one level, but they're always with me. Yes, that's fascinating because I do regard Molly still as being immortal, actually, and almost everything I still do, it's in her honor, including this podcast series. It is to really highlight, you know, my journey with Molly, talking to new people like you who, who I've met, which is amazing, and analyzing this this loss aspect because it is something that is consistent with everyone who owns a dog and i think it really takes people by surprise and it's difficult to pigeonhole this in terms of for example compassionate leave is something that's been discussed quite a bit in the uk at the moment is it right to offer people time off work to grieve for their dog, to make the arrangements for their cremation and just take some time. Um, how is that in the States? Well, uh, I think those conversations are happening, but we might be still in the process of figuring out how, how to approach that. Um, but the spirit of what we're talking about is a way to honor a connection that for some people, uh, it's as important as any other human connection, whether that's friends or family or a romantic partner. Uh, so the idea that an animal companion would be uh, the reason why people would feel a disruption in their life and the loss of them, uh, it, it makes perfect sense to me. And it seems like uh, a way to move forward, not just in practical ways to help people be productive in terms of work, but uh, it is a way to honor that memory and connection. 
Totally. I, I, I couldn't agree more. And some firms here, you know, are offering this. Um, there's been a bit of a turnaround. There was a, a case actually last summer, I think it was, yes, where a young girl lost her dog that morning and went to work and she felt absolutely awful and said to her boss, I can't, I'm sorry, I'm just not in the frame of mind, you know, to be here today. Please, can I go home? And he said, yes, you can. And don't bother coming back. So so she lost her job because she was so upset at having lost her dog. And she was a young person um, uh, under 20, you know, and it must have been very painful. And and that caused a, a massive uproar and, and lots of airings actually on the radio to talk about this as it's just such a different relationship that you have with a dog. And I can see why in your study, 62% of men felt their relationship with their dog to be the best, I guess. And and in your psychology sessions or psycho, is it psychoanalysis that you I'm do? I'm a Chris? psychoanalytic psychologist. Yeah. Okay. Okay. How do you integrate the dog into prescribing solutions for your patients to get better? Well, um, a, a couple of things. I mean, I can think of a recent example uh, would be that. Uh, a client was telling me about and had been telling me about for a couple of years about what it was like to grow up and his family and how uh, the fancy phrase here is how unattuned his parents were to his emotional needs and how that left lasting residual emotionally. Um, the gentleman got a dog recently and he came to session and told me that he realized that he was also sometimes unattuned to his dog's needs. And um, it led to not just a, a level of insight in terms of, wow, um, this is, uh, I can pass this on maybe to other people, but to other dogs as well. But it, it became a type of insight and a type of turning point where, uh, a person might feel inclined to soften toward their parents and see them in more human terms, so to speak. Uh, but dogs can kind of teach us lessons. Uh, one of the things that's so important about our connection is there's not a lot of guessing involved. I, I think about what Freud said about dogs, and um, he was actually a very big dog person. But one of the things he's most noted for was saying that, you know, you can trust dogs because they love their friends and bite their enemies. So there is a, uh, an honesty in the way that they relate. And that honesty is important in terms of the feedback we get from them. A dog's life is supported by RelaxoPet. It's simply animal relaxing. Being left alone, traveling, fireworks, thunder, trips to the vet, or just a change in any environment can unsettle a pet. This tune sounds very relaxing, yet beneath this meditative melody are levels of frequencies that are only audible to your dog. When I tried out RelaxoPet with my excitable miniature bull terrier Prudence, I simply couldn't believe how quickly she settled and actually seemed more deeply relaxed. Her behavior in general has actually dropped several gears <laughs> and she is more confident and calm in herself. So I use it every day. Developed in Germany, RelaxoPet emanates cleverly configured frequencies that tune into your dog's subconscious to retrain his thought processes into becoming calm. 
Tested in collaboration with vets, breeders, pet parents, in a huge variety of stressful situations, it boasts a uniquely calibrated speaker system that just plugs in and plays. Along with the Relaxo Pet sound system, you can develop a calmer dog with other Relaxo Pet products, like the super sense safe multi purpose play ring and the soothing cool bandana. Why not check out their full product range and even order yours today from PetTradeInnovations.com? That's PetTradeInnovations.com. I mean, I believe that we domesticated the dog way back to fulfill the one trait that the human condition lacks completely in my mind which is unconditional love and that might sound a bit damaged in a way but you know if you think about it I relationships on a human level they, they pretty much are all quid pro quo there's little altruism but it is true the true honesty of the dog I, I get you on that one so much and I believe you can't lie to a dog not least because they can smell your moods and they can smell if you're uptight around them and so they'll be thinking no I don't like you you're a bit suspicious of me and I know that already because I can smell your cortisol levels <laughs> rising as <laughs> as you're in the room which is great but it's surely also the dog's simplicity of life which again humans tend to overcome complicate everything whereas the dog just likes to go for a walk and play fetch with you in the garden and have a tickle under the ear and that's just perfect right well in i'll cite freud here again uh, when he talked about his love for his especially his child dogs yes he talked about them in the context of a type of pure love that doesn't exist between human beings and it, that's a powerful thing. And it goes very much along the lines of the kind of unconditional uh, care and acceptance that you mentioned. And so that's the part of attachment that I think really speaks to us at a social animal level in terms of our need. And it's hardwired need to make attachments and sustain them. So that's the part that draws us in, the attachment part. And the other part of this is when we lose them, the flip side of attachment is always loss uh, because there are no permanent attachments. But uh, what ends up happening for a lot of people, I think, is there is a type of pure love between us and our animal companions. And then when we lose them, we experience a type of pure loss or pure grief that might be unlike anything else we've ever encountered uh, because there's a, a powerfulness there. There's not a, a kind of conflicted complication that we experience in most, if not all our human relationships. We just love our dogs. And when we lose them, there is an overwhelming sense of this pure type of grief. Yes. You know, the studies that have been done on um, people that will say they've grieved more for their dog than their, you know, their, their parents or, you know, close friends or other relatives. And, and one of the best things to exemplify this is I'm, I was honored to go to the oldest pet cemetery actually in the world where it's in Paris, Chris, um, where Rin Tin Tin, you know, the first really famous Rin Tin Tin, he's actually buried there. He's a 
fabulous grave and but it's a very old cemetery and some of the inscriptions oh my word on some of these really old victorian tombs they literally get your heart and they pull it out and rip it up you know mm. um the whereas you know you look at some human tombs you know or um headstones and it's like, oh, you know, <laughs> Auntie Flo lived from this date to the other date. You know, we love you. But they're very short um, and they're all pretty much the same. Whereas this, this cemetery reveals so much, I think, of this, this love, this um, pure, like Freud said. Yes, it's, it's well worth a visit, Chris, if you're ever in Paris. <laughs> I'll have to put that on my travel list for sure. Yeah, definitely. But yes, so Freud, I went before this conversation, I was actually likening you in my head to Freud, funnily enough, because his dog would be in the consulting rooms, would he not? And and know the time frame of when the session was over. <laughs> that's right. That's right. His dog had an uncanny ability to, besides having his own analytic couch to sit on, um, you know, uncanny ability to know when it was time for the session to be over. He would get off the couch and Freud knew and he didn't need a clock to tell him. Yeah. Um, it's probably worth mentioning too, just in terms of background uh, for Freud, that he, um, he experienced quite a lot of loss in his life, like most folks do. Uh, maybe we don't think about him in that way, but it's a humanizing kind of uh, notion to think about when he was in his 60s, he was diagnosed with cancer of the jaw, and at some point he had 30 operations related to that and wore a prosthetic jaw. And part of the way his dog helped him was he would masticate his meat so it would soften up so he could actually eat it. Uh, so there was that type of bond between Freud and his dogs that they were omnipresent in his life. Uh, especially in the later years. Wow, I never knew that. So the dog would actually, gosh, chew his meat first. And gosh, but that's that's such a kind of natural pack instinct to do that because, of course, that's what you know mother dogs and the in the wolf pack, for example, would do for their pups when they're being weaned. Again, going back in time, which leads a bit, I guess, to talking about some of your books and um, one that I've been privy to reading some of the pages about, um, which is. Brotherhood of the Bond. Right. So that's uh, it's, uh, a book that um, hopefully will be out sometime in the near future, but it's a collection of stories about men in the last 200 years, something I refer to as the age of dog. Uh, some men that we know for, you know, their achievements, whether that's Freud or Charles Darwin or Charles Dickens, uh, but uh, a less known part of their life would be their important connection with dogs and how that connection really impacted them, if not influenced them in some of their professional work. It's, it's fascinating. And it just shows as well, it's a bit like looking at dogs in art in a way, Chris, don't you think? Because you can really see over centuries and, and before that, even in paintings in caves, that dogs, man and dog, have worked together, have been together for so many years that we're almost one, you know? That's right. We are, you can see our tracks side by side for the last at least 10 to 30,000 years. And that, that is a powerful thing, uh, no doubt. I think one of the things that, you know, I think this element has always been there. 
uh, but it's probably become more prevalent in the last 200 years, that working dogs that used to be involved in herding and helping around the farms, um, they've taken on different functions for folks. And they take on a kind of a different kind of work. And that work would be that they are emotional and psychological companions to us. And that shift, uh, you know, you can see this in lots of different ways over the last 200 years, whether it's our reaction to the Industrial Revolution or uh, a much needed connection to nature and dogs being a kind of middle station between us and nature, uh, or the shift in terms of them taking on different psychological functions in such a prevalent way, uh, it really speaks to how we impact dogs, but they certainly impact us at an individual level and a cultural level as well. I couldn't agree more. They, but they, you know, they they're born bilingual. You know, Chris, because they they're born already knowing what pointing means. And I often refer to that because chimps, they don't know what pointing means. So in a way, a dog is more intelligent than a chimpanzee, which is our closest cousin, allegedly. So that fascinates me in the way dogs read our facial expressions. So they, they do know what we're thinking. I think that's a really important point. And uh, dogs are really unique. And I'm sure this research is going to be uh, worked on more and more. But Dogs and chimpanzees and recently horses, uh, those are the three animals so far that have been linked to something called the left gaze bias. And that is a fancy way of saying when dogs look at human faces, they orient to the left side of their faces. And that helps them understand a type of micro expression related to emotion. So when dogs really do read our facial expressions and they respond to them in sync with how we feel, whether we're happy or sad, our experience of that psychologically is that they really are attuned to us in a way that we may not experience with other human companions. So it, it, it just deepens our potential bond that dogs get us. Dogs get us, yeah. But I'm fascinated by your, your love of James Herriot because <laughs> obviously being I'm a very British icon, really, and his the famous television series, uh, All Creatures Great and Small, you know, I grew up on that. I'm that generation. What does James Herriot mean to you in particular? Um, I really uh, enjoy and it really has influenced um, his reading his books has really influenced me in the way that he tells stories that there can be a kind of honesty that's not overblown but when he talks about the connection that he sees between people and animals in his veterinary practice or his own connection uh, he really for me he really gets at the heart of things that we're talking about today a type of pure love a type of feeling like dogs get us, animals get us, and the way it influences us and really touches us at the deepest levels. Yes, though so I've read several of his stories and it was in one of them where he's helping an older man. You probably remember the story and this older gentleman is absolutely devastated because his dog has passed and obviously 
James had to euthanize the dog. And I remember, you know, this this phrase, which again, my, my father always used this, which was uh, the hair of the dog cure has got nothing to do with hangovers, <laughs> but mm. everything to fixing your heart. And that's, I suppose, why people do. And I think they're right after the loss of their, their one dog, the dog that took them on a journey, perhaps unexpectedly, you know, the dog, maybe your Sadie, your Kelsey, those memories. It's it's only right in my mind, I think, to continue this by bringing another dog into your life. And I think then the dog's sense of fun and being in the moment helps perhaps pull you through the, the terrible pain. I agree with you there. And I think there is definitely a psychological function to welcoming other dogs in your life. And it speaks to the idea that love is not a a limited quality in our life, that the more we love and the deeper we love, the more we potentially have that to share with others. And for some, that ends up being our dogs and welcoming other dogs into our life. And that that kind of connection doesn't have to be in competition with each other. That our connection with our dog who really changed our life can be the foundation for connecting with others, whether that's dogs or humans, our partners or our kids. Uh, It's one of the things that I feel like we learn most from our dogs. They teach us to expand our ability to be with others. Yes. Well, Chris, that's, uh, I've so enjoyed this conversation and I, I really hope you'd like to come back sometime and talk some more. It would be my pleasure. It's really nice visiting with you. Well, Mr. Binks, that's our show for this week. What did you think? Yes, what Chris said about some people having stronger connections with their dogs than with other relationships certainly rang true. And the story of Sigmund Freud having his dogs chew his food for him was just such a perfect example of that. I hope you all enjoyed it as well. If you did, go on, please subscribe to A Dog's Life with Anna Webb. We're streaming on all your favorite podcast apps. And while you're there, go on, give us a five-star review as it really will help other dog lovers find us. Thanks, of course, to Dr. Chris Blasina for joining us today. And you can find him on at Dr. Chris Blasina. Thanks also to our brilliant sponsors, Earth Animal No Hide Chews and RelaxoPet, which you can order through Pet Trade Innovations. Links to all their websites are in the show notes. And please follow them on at EarthAnimal1979, at RelaxoPet, and at Pet Trade Innovations. Thanks also to my very patient producer, Mike Hansen at Pod People Productions for all the production and the music for A Dog's Life. Follow them at Pod People UK. And of course, for the latest on me, I'm at Anna Webb Dogs. What's that, Mr. Binks? Yes, you're right. We will be back in your feed next Sunday for another episode of A Dog's Life with Anna Webb. What's that, Mr. Binks? Yes, that's right. We will be back in your feed next Sunday for another episode of A Dog's Life with Anna Webb. Next week is Remembrance Sunday, and I'll be speaking to Emma Ward from the amazing National Military Working Dogs Memorial about the vital role that dogs have played in helping us in combat. 
It is a very moving episode, so please subscribe now to make sure you won't miss it. Bye for now. Pod people.